And once again, let me welcome you to Cornerstone Presbyterian Church. It's a privilege to have you here with us if you're visiting, uh, if you're a first-time visitor or a or regular guest. Uh, so glad that you're here. My name is Ben Griffith. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's my privilege to, to pick up God's Word in our season or in our series uh, in, in the book of Exodus. We find ourselves this morning in Exodus chapter 22, beginning in verse 26, and God's people are still gathered underneath the shadow of Mount Sinai here. He's just given the Ten Commandments to God's people, and our passage continues this morning in this long section of laws and statutes and commandments that's come to be known as the Book of the Covenant. And in this section of Exodus, God, what He's doing is He's spelling out for the people of Israel what real or what obedience to the Ten Commandments looks like in the everyday, in and out, ordinary, muck and mire of everyday, ordinary routine life. God is fleshing out and unpacking what the Ten Commandments looks like applied to your Wednesday at 10 o'clock or Friday at 11 p.m. or whatever, the ins and outs of God's people's everyday, ordinary life. That's what this section is. But that brings up this problem. You might, you might look at these laws and commandments and think, well, the ins and outs of ordinary, everyday life back then looks nothing like my ordinary life right now. And so how can this be relevant? For instance, the last law or commandment that we read this morning is do not boil a young goat in its mother's blood. My guess is a few seconds ago in the confession of sin portion of our, of our service that you, you probably weren't confessing that. You probably didn't struggle with that this week. That probably wasn't something that you were wrestling with. And so that commandment and others like them were tempted to read this section and think that they're outdated or irrelevant, or out of touch. Maybe they applied to God's people's everyday, ordinary, routine life back in the Bronze Age. But, but what about my life right now? Well, what I hope you'll be surprised by this morning, what I hope you'll see, is that what God is doing in these sections of laws is He's showing us that there is no square inch of our lives that remains untouched when we are rescued and saved by grace. There's not a square inch of your life there's not a millisecond of your week. There's not a dollar in your bank account. There's not a single relationship in your sphere of influence that remains untouched, unaffected, and untransformed when God rescues you by his grace and adopts you into his family and gives you his steadfast love. It changes everything. Think of it like this. This last week we watched as Hurricane Ian rip through ripped through Florida. And for those sections of Florida that were ground zero, it affected everything. I remember walking through the ruins of Hurricane Katrina uh, back on the Mississippi coast. And when it, for those sections of the, of the coast that was ground zero, there was not a square inch that was unaffected, untouched. The wind, the rain, the storm damage, everything was changed. But I want you to imagine this. Imagine a Category 5 hurricane making a direct hit on a beach town, but, but this is a different kind of hurricane. I want you to imagine that instead of tearing everything apart, that this kind of hurricane puts everything back together again. That it doesn't destroy, it, it heals and puts back together and restores. And the power of this storm makes things work the way that they're supposed to. And it makes ugly things beautiful. It makes broken things whole. 
and that nothing that's in its path is unaffected. Y'all, that's a, that's a picture of what happens when the good news of the gospel makes landfall in a person's heart. And when it takes root in a person's life, it changes everything. Nothing's unaffected. Our schedule, our priorities, our desires, our bank accounts, our business practices, our, atti- our attitude towards the people that we don't like or that are different than us, everything changes. Let's see how that's true. Exodus 22, beginning in verse 16. If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. You shall not permit a sorceress to live. Whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. Whoever sacrifices to any god other than Yahweh alone shall be devoted to destruction. You shall not wrong a sojourner or, suppre- or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry, and my wrath will burn, and I will kill you with the sword, and your wives shall become widows, and your children fatherless. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him, and you shall not exact interest from him. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak in pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. In what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. You shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. You shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest and from the outflow of your presses. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. You shall do the same with your oxen and with your sheep. Seven days it shall be with its mother. On the eighth day you shall give it to me. You shall be consecrated to me. Therefore you shall not eat any flesh that is torn by beasts in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit, siding with the many so as to pervert justice, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and the righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. And you shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. You shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. For six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield, but the seventh year you shall let it Rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat, and, and what they leave the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. Pay attention to all I have said to you, and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips." Three times in the year you shall keep a feast to me. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. As I commanded you, you shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Abib, for in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty-handed. You shall keep the feast of harvest. 
of the first fruits of your labor, of what you sow in the field. You shall keep the feast of ingathering at the end of the year when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened or let the fat of my feast remain until the morning. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. And you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we we pray now that you would send your spirit, please, to help us to see you revealed in this portion of your word. For your laws reveal your heart. And so let us see you more clearly. The God who gives the law to us and and the God who has kept the law for us. And so in that, O Lord, may we learn to trust you and to love you more after having seen this portion of your word. And we pray that, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen. So if I'm counting right, there's 32 individual specific commands or statutes here in our passage that God is giving to Israel. And we just read them. Um, You're all thinking what I was thinking a week and a half ago. Where in the world is this going to go? Um, well, buckle up. There's 32 individual commands. This is going to be the first 32-point sermon that you've ever heard. I'm just kidding. Thankfully not. But look, let's be honest. The, the amount and the variety of commands and laws and statutes here that we just read can be pretty overwhelming, a little disorienting, right? There's a lot here. And on first or second reading, it, there doesn't seem to be any logical order in how they're arranged and how they're grouped. They just come across as maybe a little random, a little scattered, right? Well, here's the thing. There's 32 here, but look, this is just a fraction of what else is there in the rest of the Old Testament law portions of Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy. The scribes and the Pharisees counted 613 separate individual commands like this, 613. And that can be pretty daunting and overwhelming until you realize what God is doing in each of them. What he's doing is he's applying the Ten Commandments to the everyday, routine, complicated, messy realities of his people's everyday lives. Every command that we have here in our passage and elsewhere in the Old Testament, it's tied to, it's anchored into one, of, one or more of the Ten Commandments, and it's spelling it out. It's fleshing it out. It's saying this is what obedience to the Ten Commandments looks like when the rubber hits the road of your everyday life. Think of it like this. Imagine 613 different separate helium balloons that are all floating up in the air, but they're all tied with strings and anchored into one of 10 different anchor points down on the ground, okay? That's kind of like how this works. Every individual command or statute, both here and throughout the Old Testament, are anchored into and tied into one or more of the Ten Commandments. But here's the thing, it actually doesn't stop there. The reality is that even those Ten Commandments that every other law is tied into, those Ten Commandments actually end up being balloons themselves that are anchored into something else, anchored into something more deep, more central, more more fundamental. The Ten Commandments are actually balloons that are tied into what Jesus refers to as the great commandment, the greatest 
And then he says, and there's one just like it. And you've heard us talk about this before in the last few weeks. What Jesus refers to as the greatest commandment, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind and all of your strength. And then he says, and the second, it's just like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And y'all, here's what this means. It means that every commandment or law that God gives us is at rock bottom about loving God and loving our neighbor. Every commandment, that's what God's after. That's what he's seeking. That's what he's saying. Jesus is saying you can boil it all down to this, that what God wants and what God requires of us is wholehearted, absolute, perfect devotion to the God that's above us and wholehearted love and affection for the image bearers of God that are around us. Love for the God that's above us and love for his image bearers that's around us. Love for God and love for our neighbors. That's what God is after. And that's also what wells up in the heart of someone that's been captured by grace. It's the natural response of someone who's been captured by the good news of the gospel that you begin to love him and begin to love others in ways that you could not have otherwise. Um, So look, here's how we're going to approach this passage this morning. Instead of a 32-point sermon, what I want to do instead is I want to see how these 32 laws and commandments here are all at rock bottom expressions of the greatest commandment and the one that's just like it, to love God and to love our neighbor. And here's, so here's where we're going, two points. In light of God's pursuing grace and steadfast love, God wants us to live for him and to love like him. In light of God's pursuing grace and steadfast love, God wants us, first of all, to live for him. And what I mean by that, by living for God, I mean that God wants us to be completely, wholeheartedly, and only for Him. He wants to occupy the center of our lives. He will not settle for being one among many other things that we live for or that we live in light of. He will be the only thing that we live for and live in light of. In other words, listen, He's not just after some of our heart and some of our soul and mind and strength. He's saying, I won't settle for anything less than all of it because that's actually how I love you. I'm not holding anything back from you. And the only proper response to a love like that is to love me back with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, to be all for God. And y'all, we see that running like a thread and tying together so many of these Statutes and commandments right here. I want you to notice, first of all, chapter 22, verses 18 through 20. Three things that, that right out of the gate deserve the death penalty back in the old covenant context. You shall not permit a sorceress to live, and whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death, and whoever sacrifices to another god besides Yahweh shall be devoted to destruction. It's interesting here. These three things don't seem to be related to each other at first glance, but watch how they are. But I want you to see, first of all, that when when God talks about a a sorceress, notice that God doesn't say it's not real, that it's all just smoke and mirrors and parlor tricks. Like, God seems to take it very seriously. And he says, if you dabble in it, it's worth losing your life. Don't touch it. 
but he doesn't say it's not real. And then I just want you to let verse 19 hit you. Just let this hit you, that God actually had to forbid this behavior in his own covenant community. Apparently, bestiality is something that God knew that even his own people are capable of and might be tempted towards. And so he actually had to use up good pen and paper to forbid his people from bestiality. And that's simply a lesson, isn't it, in the fact that God knows that his own people are capable of the worst, most disgusting levels of depravity if left to themselves because of the sin that we come into this world with. And so even God has to say, this shall not be found among you. Now there's a common thread here, though, in, in all of these three things that ties them together, and it's this, it's, it's idolatry. It's worship of false gods. Sorcery was an attempt to engage with and to control and to manipulate other spiritual beings that are out there. And notice God actually doesn't say it doesn't work. He says don't do it. And the practice of bestiality was was actually a well-known pagan fertility ritual that was practiced in all of the Canaanite neighbors that that, that, that Israel had. And as revolting as it sounds, they thought that this was a good way to get your God's attention and to make them fertile and to get their crops to grow and to have a successful life. It was a good way to get your God's attention and get him to give you life, whether it's your own children or your crops and herds. And God says in all of these three instances, don't do it. Don't don't get anywhere near it because that's not how you relate to me. That's not how you live in light of me. You've already got my attention, and you can't control or manipulate me, and I'm not going to be one of the many spiritual resources that you turn to to try to have the life that you want. So false worship, idolatry, he's saying, is not an option for you because I am the one true and living God, and I will not just be one thing among others that you trust or that you live in light of. I will not share your allegiance and your loyalty. I want you all for me. He's he's saying, I will be the only contact in your phone. I don't want you even being even tempted to call on or to trust in or to turn to anything or anyone else. I will not share your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength with anyone. And this helps us understand this strange prohibition in chapter 23, verse 19, about boiling a young goat in its mother's milk. Again, same thing. This was an ancient Canaanite fertility ritual, a part of pagan worship. They thought that eating a young goat that was cooked in its own mother's milk was some kind of divinely juiced up, like, superfood. You know, some kind of, some kind of superfood that would help them live longer and get pregnant and stay healthy and be successful. And God is saying, in light of my pursuing grace and steadfast love, I want you to trust and believe and rest and rely on me only. Nothing that even remotely resembles idolatry or pagan worship should be within 10 miles of you because I want you wholeheartedly and unreservedly for me. All of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He's saying, I want all of your trust all of your devotion, all of your affection. I want to be the one and only source of your life 
and your joy and your meaning and purpose and rest. The only one that you turn to when life hurts or when things spin out of control or when you're looking for something to grab hold of in this life that's stable and permanent. I, I can't, I'm the only one, he's saying. I want to be your chief end and your only comfort in life and in death, because this is the way that I approach and relate to you. I've given all of you, all of me, to you. And the only proper response is to live all the way for me. Now look, that's what's behind these seemingly random and strange laws that we've just covered, but it's also what God says explicitly in some of the other statutes and commandments here. Look at chapter 22, verses 29, 30, and 31, he says, You shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest and from the outflow of your presses. And the firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. You shall do the same with your oxen and your sheep. And then verse 31, you shall be consecrated to me. And then skipping forward in chapter 23, verse 19, he says, The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord. Is God just being stingy and selfish here? Is he just saying, I don't want you to have good things? No. To be consecrated means to be set apart for holy use. It means to be completely and unreservedly for something or someone else. And God says to demonstrate just how for me you are. And to demonstrate how every square inch of your life and time and possessions and everything is employed for me, I want you to freely give me the first and the best. As a as a symbol that everything else belongs to me too. The best of your harvest, your wine, your oxen, your sheep. Notice he says even your sons. What does that mean? Is he referring to human sacrifice? It might kind of scare you at first because it sounds like that, but no, God is, he's actually referring to something that we've seen before earlier in the book of Exodus where God requires the firstborn males in Israel to be bought back with a price, to be redeemed, because that's what God did for them earlier in Egypt. Remember, God is telling them, I paid a price for you. Someone else died in your place. And that's why the firstborn of the Egyptians died, is because a price was not paid for them. Their life was the price. But you have been purchased, redeemed. And so you're going to live out that reality and remind yourself of that story every time that a firstborn son comes among you. And remember this language of first fruits. What does that mean? It's symbolic for everything else, okay? So like when the first grapes of the harvest show up, those first fruits point to the fact, and they represent everything else that's coming. And the firstborn son, he's kind of the first fruits of the family. He represents the whole family. Remember, he gets the whole inheritance. So the firstborn son represents everybody else. And so here's what God is saying. Because of my pursuing grace and steadfast love, Because I have given all of myself to you. All of you belongs to me. And I want you to give all of you to me. All of your heart and soul and mind and strength in love. So you see at root, so many of these laws that we read here, at root, at rock bottom, is the great commandment. It's God's calling on his people's lives, on your life and mine to live only for him, and to live only in light of him. 
And you know, you see the same logic throughout the Scriptures, throughout the Bible. If you read the book of Romans, for 11 chapters, Paul is expounding on the riches and beauty and goodness and, and the, the wealth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, what he's done and, and who he is. And after 11 verses of that, he starts chapter 12 by saying, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, in view of the mercies of God, meaning in light of everything else I've just said, because of God's grace and mercy shown to you in Jesus Christ, present your bodies as living sacrifices to God. He's saying it's the only proper response. A God who gives you all of himself. The only proper response is to hop back on that altar and give all of you to him. He's saying in light of God's pursuing grace and steadfast love, I want you all for me. Because that's what Jesus did for you. He held none of himself back. He lived your life in your place. He climbed up on that altar that was the cross. And he held nothing back from you. Nothing good. And Paul is saying the only proper response in view of that is to give yourself wholly for him. Let me ask you something. If you're a believer this morning, if you have crawled up on that altar in response to God's love, if you believe that that you've repented and believed and you're hanging on to Jesus right now, is it possible that you're maybe keeping a little bit of yourself off the altar? It is possible to climb up on the altar and maybe keep your right hand off or keep your left foot dangling off. Maybe it could be the way that you spend your time or these dreams or ambitions that you have for the future or your wealth or, your, or whatever resource that you have. Something of your heart, soul, mind, and strength that you aren't quite trusting to him yet. Part of the point of this passage is that there is no square inch of a believer's life that's unaffected or unchanged or untransformed by the grace of God that we're called to live in light of. And that's good news. He says, in light of the fact that I have given all of myself to you, live for me. That's the first point, but, he, but there's something else that ties together all of these statutes and laws that we've just read, and it's this. It's the second point of our sermon this morning. In light of God's pursuing grace and steadfast love, we should not only live for God, but we should love like God. In other words, these statutes and these laws are not only anchored into the so-called greatest commandment, they're also anchored into what Jesus refers to as the flip side of that coin, to love your neighbor as yourself. When God becomes the one that we are living for, because of his pursuing grace and his steadfast love, we inevitably begin to love what he loves. His opinion of things and people begins to change our opinion of those same things and people. When we love God more than anything else, we begin to love what he loves and how he loves. Think about it like this. My favorite band is a group called the Avet Brothers. Um, you might have heard of them. Somebody in the first service never had because they walked out and said, I need to go look up the, the Advent Brothers on Spotify. And I was like, oh, you got to, please do. But I, 
I love the Avett Brothers. Been listening to them a long time. They're just a they're a great group. I've seen them about ten times in concert, and whenever they're within about two hundred and fifty miles of a radius, you know, from me and Rebecca, my wife, we're, we'll probably find a way to go see them. They're just we really like them. But here's the thing: true story, true confessions, and don't tell them this if you ever get to talk to them. But it wasn't always that way. When I first heard the Avett Brothers back in my probably my junior or senior year of college. Just wasn't that impressed. Just didn't really make a dent. Um, could take it or leave it. But there was something else going on in my life, my junior and senior year of college. I was starting to fall in love with this girl named Rebecca, who really liked the Avett brothers. <laughs> and her opinion of their music fundamentally changed and rewired my opinion of them. And it wasn't forced. Like, she did not have to hold a gun to my head and make me jump on the bandwagon, right? Like, I genuinely started to like them. Why? Well, they're really good. But also because my love for Rebecca was starting to change my opinion of the things that she loved. And I was drawn freely to love the things that she also loved. And y'all, that's the dynamic that's at work here and throughout the Bible. Our love for God, because of His pursuing grace and steadfast love, draws us willingly to love what He loves and to love how He loves. And what does God love throughout this passage? It's the people that the world overlooks. The people on the peripheral, on the margins. Those with little influence or power or standing. In the ancient world, these were the nobodies. One commentator calls this collection of people the quartet of the vulnerable. And they show up all over the place in the Old Testament as the special object of God's affection. The quartet of the vulnerable, the poor, the widow, the orphan, and the stranger. This is a collection of people that have no social standing or power or influence in the ancient world They usually lived meal to meal and their lives hung by a thread because no one had to look out for them. They had no protector, no one to go to bat for them. They could be ignored and left out and no one would notice. And God is staring his people in the face and he's saying, it will not be that way with you because I notice them and I'm their protector and I love them and I notice them and I see them. And because I love them, you must love them too. Because of my pursuing grace and steadfast love, love like me, he's saying. And we see this emphasis throughout these laws and statutes here. God wanted love for the quartet of the vulnerable to shape Israelite culture and society at every level. Notice. Notice what it shapes. It shapes lending practices, business practices, (laughs) Your, your, your economy, chapter 22, verses 25, 26, and 27. Look, God, is, God just seems to be so much more interested in the poor around you than he is in your prophet. And the God of the universe is so deeply interested in how a poor man sleeps at night that he doesn't want him to be cold because one of his people would take the poor man's only coat as a pledge that he was going to pay him back. And God says, Just be ripped off because I care about how the poor man sleeps at night. It shapes the way we think about our criminal justice system. Chapter 23, verse 6. 
God anticipates that the poor will be overlooked, underrepresented, and likely taken advantage of. And so he says, you shall not pervert the justice that's due to your poor in his lawsuit. And notice that phrase, your poor. He's not just saying the poor Israelites. He's saying, I want you to feel some kind of weight and responsibility. They're your poor. And notice that God wanted love for the vulnerable to change the way that his people thought about sex outside of marriage, sex before marriage. Love for, the, love for our neighbor influences the way we think about our own sexuality. That's what's behind this commandment at the very beginning of this passage. It says, if a man seduces a virgin who's not betrothed and lies with her, then he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. It's important to see here that the scenario that's in view here is not rape, it's not sexual assault, and it's not abuse of some kind. God covered that in other places of the Old Testament law, and it came with the death penalty. God took it very, very seriously. But the scenario that's, that's in view here is a sexual relationship that's consensual, but it's outside of the boundaries of marriage, which means that the man can just wake up the next morning decide he's not really that into her, go on with life and leave her ashamed and exposed and alone. Because in that culture at that time, a young unmarried woman that loses her virginity was going to end up among the quartet of the vulnerable. And so this law here, it is saying don't have sex outside of marriage. It is promoting the, a true biblical sexual ethic that sex is only to be enjoyed within the boundaries of marriage. But notice that it's actually, it's also going deeper and saying, God is saying, I care so deeply about the dignity and the honor of the young woman that could be left out to dry and ditched after sex that I don't want her to join the quartet of the vulnerable. Her honor means something to me. The dignity, of somebody, the dignity of somebody that no one else will care for, I care for. And so you must too. It matters to me, and so it must matter to you. And we, see, we see the same thing coming out in these laws about the Sabbath in chapter 23, verses 10, 11, and 12. There's so much here, and I bet this you know, sounds very much like the fourth commandment. It's, it's fleshing out the logic of the fourth commandment. But I just want you to see here this, that God's command for his people to rest on the Sabbath day and to let the land rest every seven years, that it's anchored in love for our neighbor. It's rooted in mercy and generosity. It's rooted in God's deep concern for the vulnerable and the needy. And so he says, you must rest. There must be space even if it feels like you're wasting some of your profit, it's for the people around you that don't have as much. And elsewhere in the Bible, when he says, don't plow all the way to the borders of your field, because that actually belongs to the poor and the needy, the vulnerable. God is saying, in light of my pursuing grace and steadfast love, love like me. Love the people that I love and be interested in the people that I'm interested in. And listen, don't get this. He's saying, because you're just like them. Because you're just like them. And this really comes out in chapter 22, verses 21 
and following. He says, and y'all, this is an incredible passage. He says, you shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. Do not mistreat them, or if you mistreat them, and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry. And my wrath will burn, and I will kill you with the sword, and your wives will become the widows, and your children will turn into the fatherless. That's incredible. He's saying the poor and the marginalized within your sphere of influence, they've got my cell phone number. They've got a direct line right to me. And if they call and they say that you're mistreating them, it's not going to go well for you. You're going to turn into one of them. He's saying, remember who you are. Remember the true story about who you are and who I am. You are rescued sojourners. And the only difference between you and them is that I've shown you grace that you didn't deserve. And if you forget that and live out of a different identity, if you believe a different story about yourself, then you're going to start acting like the Egyptians. And I'll treat you like them. That's how deeply God is interested and invested in mercy for the needy, in compassion for the vulnerable, in justice. And y'all, we see here a window into the very heart and character of God. This is what God is like. His laws reveal Him. You drill down into God and this is what you find. Mercy, compassion, justice, and grace. His laws reveal a God who is merciful and compassionate and tender towards the vulnerable and the needy. These laws reveal a God who identifies with the poor, the outcast, the outsider, and his people must too. In fact, he identifies with them to such a degree that one day soon in heaven you will hear this conversation play out, Jesus says. Jesus tells us that this conversation will be had in heaven between the king and the people who have lived for the king. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to see me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. You know, a king like that, a king who's so generous and kind, and tender, that he would become like the people that he came to save, is a king that you want to live for, and that you want to love like. Because, y'all, that's what he's done for you and me. You and I are the orphans that he's turned into sons and daughters. You and I are the poor that he's given his own inheritance to. 
You and I are the, are the widow that is now the bride of Christ. And you and I are the strangers that he has welcomed home. And a God like that, we should be living for and loving like all of our days. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for this. Thank you for giving us a window into your own heart. And we pray that it would motivate us to become more like you. We pray that seeing your pursuing grace and your steadfast love would melt us into generosity and compassion, to have a concern for what you're concerned about so that we might be true salt and light in this world that you are sending us out to. And so let us do that, O God, by your grace, living for you and loving like you. In your name we pray, amen.